It's good to be together. And as our call to worship this morning, we're going to use um, some words that are actually printed on the sheet and will also appear on the screen. Can I suggest that those who are aged 50 and under join with me in the words that are in the white on the screen or the light type on the sheets. And those who are 51 and older... To the yellow. I think that works out roughly a 50-50 split. And my sincere apologies to Jeff. You can go with the 15 unders if you prefer. And you know, Paul's still a 15 under, so that's okay. So we share together in our call to worship. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights of praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all his shining stars. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave them freedom that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. You raise Lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do this bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth. Young men and maidens, all men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. Praise the Lord. I would have to say the 51 and over gave it more welly. And now let's come to God in prayer. We pray together. Ever-living God, we come together to bring you our thanks and praise. For you have given us hearts and minds capable of thinking and feeling. We come to listen for your voice in scripture, song and prayer. Help us to listen carefully for what it is that you want to say to each one of us. We come searching for peace, rest, and refreshment. Grant us the ability to relax in your presence and to be renewed. We come apart from the world, yet unable to escape its reality. Hear our prayers of concern and show us how we may be part of the answer. We come in humility, aware of our frailty and sinfulness. Forgive us our willful misdemeanors and alert us to our hidden faults. We come because you are here, around us and within us, 
and you call us to walk in the footsteps of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The first reading comes from Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, and reading verses 1 to 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth disappeared, and the sea vanished. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from the heaven from God, down out of heaven from God, prepared and ready like a bride dressed to meet her husband. I heard a loud voice speaking from the throne. Now God's home is with human beings. He will, with, he will live with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more grief or crying or pain. The old things have disappeared. Then the one who sits on the throne said, And now I make all things new. He also said to me, Write this, because these words are true and can be trusted. And he said, It is done. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. To anyone who is thirsty, I will give the right to drink from the spring of, the wa- of water, of the water of life, without paying for it. And from Acts chapter 11, reading from verse 1 to 18. The apostles and the other believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. When Peter went to Jerusalem, those who were in favour of circumcising Gentiles criticised him, saying, You were a guest in the home of uncircumcised Gentiles, and you even ate with them. So Peter gave them a complete account of what had happened from the very beginning. While I was praying in the city of Joppa, I had a vision. I saw something coming down that looked like a large sheet being lowered by its four corners from heaven, and it stopped next to me. I looked closely inside and saw domesticated and wild animals, reptiles and wild birds. Then I heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Certainly not, Lord. No ritually unclean or defiled food has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke again from heaven. Do not consider anything unclean that God has declared clean. This happened three times, and finally the whole thing was drawn back up into heaven. At that very moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to go with them without hesitation. These six fellow believers from Joppa accompanied me to Caesarea, and we all went into the house of Cornelius. He told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, Send someone to Joppa for a man whose full name is Simon Peter. He will speak words to you by which you and all your family will be saved. And when I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It is clear that God gave those Gentiles the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I then to try and stop God? 
when they heard this, they stopped their criticism and praised God, saying, Then God has given to the Gentiles also the opportunity to repent and live. Amen. The readings that we have heard this morning focus on two visions experienced by significant characters in the story of the early church. The Apostle Peter and the mysterious John of Patmos, who may have been the beloved disciple referred to in the fourth gospel. They're certainly two very different people. Whilst John may have been what we would term a mystic, a person whose religious experience is characterised by ecstasies and direct experience of the numinous, Peter is generally portrayed as a very earthy, practical and even rather gruff character for whom such encounters would certainly not be part of his usual spiritual experience. He was a man who knew what was expected of him as a Torah-observant Jew and who sought to bring that understanding to the emerging Jesus movement, the early church. As we begin to reflect on Peter's vision at Joppa, we need to keep in mind that for him, it was almost certainly as unexpected an event as it was transformative. The fact that the greater part of two chapters of Acts is devoted to the story indicates how significant it was for the early church, for whom the integration of people of different nationalities, races, and cultures was a very real and very urgent challenge. Questions about what is essential for the followers of Jesus, what is desirable for his followers, and what is merely cultural, these have all continued to be asked throughout history. And in our own time of the so-called global village, they remain no less significant. We should perhaps make clear at the outset, the story doesn't say there are no boundaries and no limits to what constitutes discipleship of Jesus. But it does invite us to think very carefully what God might want to say about the boundaries and limits that we have and whether or not they may need to change. It is just possible that like Peter, we find ourselves saying, but God... In order for us to reflect on Peter's vision and its significance, we need to go back to the very beginning of the Bible and the creation stories in Genesis. I'm sure you all know there are two stories, one in Genesis 1 and one in Genesis 2, and they don't neatly match up, but they each are important in our understanding. In Genesis chapter 1, we read this. God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters, and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, 
Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on earth. There was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them. God created all forms of life, from scorpions to bats, spiders to buffaloes, seals to bandicoots, and declared all of them good. Birds, beasts, and sea monsters are part of God's good creation, that which God blessed. Genesis 1 goes on to say this about food. I have given you every plant yielding seed, It is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. Taken literally then, we have a situation where all land creatures, including humans, are herbivorous. Vegetarian, vegan, something of that ilk. But we also know that this situation did not last. Already by the story of Cain and Abel, we have animal sacrifice, which seems to be something that God finds pleasing. By the time we get to Moses and the emergence of the law, strict dietary laws are now in place. For those who want to know where, it's Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. And these define some creatures as detestable or abhorrent and others as unclean. So we are faced already with something of a conundrum. How can it be so that every form of animal life is declared good and even blessed by God in the creation stories? And yet by the time of Moses, some animals are reclassified as abhorrent or dirty. Has God's mind changed? Or is it the case that in a pre-scientific age, This is simply language that was helpful to delineate those things that were safe to eat from those that were potentially dangerous. We all know the dangers of eating badly cooked meat. We know about tapeworms in pork. We know about the risk of food poisoning from eating shellfish. But people then didn't. So is this language actually a way of helping them to keep safe in an early age? Is it possible that something is basically good but not suitable or appropriate for certain purposes? Alongside the scriptures, there emerged and in fact to some extent continues to emerge what Jews call the oral Torah. 
the results of careful consideration by rabbis and scholars of what these ancient prohibitions really mean in their own context. Now, if you've ever read the rules around kosher food, they are incredibly complicated. And even today, they continue to be reflected on and tweaked in the light of things that are going on in our world. So, for example, the prohibition to, on eating a kid cooked in its mother's milk, which is found in Exodus and Deuteronomy, finds expression in a prohibition of eating meat, which usually, but not always, includes poultry and dairy at the same meal. And indeed, there are guidelines on how long after eating a beef burger one may eat an ice cream. Somewhere between three and six hours, depending which particular kosher rules you follow. Great care is taken to this day by the strictest of Jews to ensure that any fruit or berries are completely free of tiny insects before they're eaten. Because if they accidentally ate a bug that was in a berry, that would make them, the eater, ritually unclean. Now, this is not a place to critique or criticise or make fun of what Jewish people hold dear. This is just simply to give us a sense of how it was like for Peter all that long time ago when he had that vision. It's also important to bear in mind that there is no evidence whatsoever to suggest that Jesus ever contravened Jewish dietary laws. Surely if he had have done If Jesus had had baked scorpion or a bacon sandwich, somebody would have written that down in the Gospels. So it's actually not unreasonable that Peter, as an observant Jew and a follower of Jesus, says, hang on a minute, this vision is asking me something amazing and confusing. This extraordinary experience he has, this ecstatic vision in which a vessel that looks something like a sheet lowered by its four corners is full of every animal he can think of that is detestable and unclean and probably a few more besides. And worse still, he hears a voice that says, kill and eat. To say that Peter would have been horrified is probably a gross understatement that will make the recent horse meat scandal look like nothing. To eat bacon or crab meat or anything that might form part of a bush trucker trail was not just abhorrent or culturally inappropriate, it actually cut to the heart of who he was as he understood it before God. Was this some kind of a test of his faithfulness to truth? But God, he says, I can't do this. Your law says these things are unclean. Twice more, he hears that voice, and then the vision fades. Shortly after this, while he's still trying to work out what the vision's all about, what it means... The messengers sent by the uncircumcised Gentile Cornelius arrive at the house. 
And as the conversation progresses, Peter begins to realize the significance of this vision. It's not just about what a person may or may not eat, although this story read in conjunction with parts of the Gospels and Paul's letters is widely used by Christians as permission to be liberated from ancient food laws. But actually, this is about who may receive the good news of Jesus and be drawn into its salvific purpose. For devout Jews in the first century, male circumcision was more than a medical procedure to reduce the risk of infection, though it certainly had that function. It was actually the means by which their inclusion within the covenant of God was symbolized. It might seem to us barbaric, especially when it was performed without the benefits of modern analgesia, but it was performed by a priest trained to do so, and in their culture and their understanding of what it meant to be included within the covenant, that was normal. And again, there's enormous significance here. No longer will proselytes be required to undergo this ritual, which was written into the law. I find myself wondering whether there were those listening to Peter who said, "Um, but God says, or in their own private reflection and prayer said, "Um, God, you've always told us that this was what was needed. Rather than a permanent physical mark exclusively offered to males, or performed on males, but not offered to them, uh, the rite of initiation to the emergent community of Christ is baptism. Physical immersion in water, once off, and of course not visible thereafter. Metaphorically and in some understandings ontologically, this is immersion into the threefold name of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for 2,000 years the vast majority of Christians have viewed baptism as the act that symbolizes most profoundly our commitment to Christ and our incorporation into his body that is the church universal. If you read your key when you get home, you will find some exciting news about a baptism coming up here. That's probably the first many of you have heard, but I'm very excited. As we continue to reflect on this vision and its meaning, I wonder what it is, what boundaries to inclusion that we might cling to based on biblical text or personal conviction that God might want to challenge. What actually are the central non-negotiable tenets of Christian faith that distinguish the church from other parts of God's good creation? What might we reasonably identify as timeless laws or eternal principles? And is there anything that makes us want to say, but God? As we consider that, let's do so in the light of the second vision, the vision of John, which looks ahead to the end of time and a new reality. Heaven, however we might imagine it, 
and earth as we know it are gone to be replaced by new versions of themselves in which all that is chaotic or painful or death-dealing has been eliminated. In this vision, God pitches a tent among us. The word in the Greek used is tabernacle, not dwell. And this is something about coming alongside us and sharing in this journey as a, as a moving, changing people. This is a vision of the fulfillment of the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. God will live amongst people, it says to us. As we dare to imagine that new creation, we might be surprised at what and who we see there. Our own presumptions, our own prejudices our own certainties, and indeed our own questions are swept away as we experience the magnificence of God's new order. Perhaps here too, we find ourselves saying, but God, not in a questioning way, but in awe and wonder at what we now see. May we never become so sure we know all there is to know that we are deaf to God's voice, challenging our comfortable perspectives. May we never fall prey to the temptation to wish that others would understand things our way because that is unquestionably superior. May we continue to be open to the possibility of hearing our own voices say, but God, as the Spirit moves us to deeper and more wonderful understanding of the good news. Give to us, Lord, a thankful heart and a discerning mind. We come now with our prayers for others. Let's pray. (coughs) Loving God, as we have thought today about Peter's dream and John's vision, we thank you that you are constantly at work, often in surprising ways, striving to fulfill your purpose, not just the course of history, not only the destiny of nations, but equally the life of each one of us. Everybody you have created, precious in your sight, of infinite importance. We thank you for the way you have moved in so many lives across the years, the way you have met with individuals, confronting them with your will, challenging them through your call, and leading them through your love. As we read the Bible, we are constantly surprised by the people you choose to work out your purpose. Jacob, a trickster and a cheat. Matthew, a hated tax collector. Paul, a former persecutor of the church. And Peter, who made a cowardly denial of knowing Jesus. Yet each one of them 
experiencing your life-changing touch and their place in your kingdom. We thank you for the way you can change us, however much we may despair of it sometimes, that despite our lack of faith, our many faults, and our sometimes willful disobedience, you are constantly at work within us, nurturing the fruits of the Spirit, making of us a new creation, and imparting the mind of Christ. Loving God, we lose sight sometimes of your transforming power, becoming frustrated by our repeated failure to serve you better, and disheartened by the continuing evil and heartache in our world. Evil as we see the continuing destruction and violence in Syria, and heartache as we witness the devastation in Dhaka, in Bangladesh, where many have died working in a factory producing cut-price clothing. We pray for all those involved in the rescue effort, thanking you for their perseverance and selflessness. We pray for all those whose dreams have been destroyed those who no longer have the heart to look forward, who have lost their vision for the future, so many people, known and unknown, whose happiness and hopes have been dashed by tragedy, whose faith in loved ones has been betrayed, who face poverty, unemployment, homelessness, disease, starvation, and even death. We pray for those who plod wearily through life with no sense of purpose, those who feel that the future is empty, bereft of promise, and those who live only for today, fearful of tomorrow. Touch their hearts, we pray. Stir their imagination Rekindle their faith, renew their hope, and so may new dreams and new visions be born in the most broken of lives and in each one of us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Circle us, Lord. Keep love within Keep hatred out. Circle us, Lord. Keep joy within. Keep fear out. Circle us, Lord. Keep peace within. Keep worry out. Circle us, Lord. Keep light within. Keep darkness out. Circle us, Lord, and may you stand in the circle with us, one God who creates, redeems, and sustains today and always. Mm-hmm.